Hello, everyone, and welcome to my first kind of of a series that I want to start kind of like drip feeding here and there across the podcast episodes, which is the mindset of dot, dot, dot. And today I thought it'd be very exciting to do the mindset of a serial killer. Now, that that was weirdly – well, not even weirdly because I'm on the same page as you guys, but that was the most requested thing for the mindset of. I did a little question box as usual. You guys were great with your responses. And the most common one – was serial killer. I had some other great suggestions. So can't wait for that. Can't wait for all the other things that we're going to do. But today is the mindset of a serial killer. Did you guys like that? That was like my first ever, ever use of a sound effect. So let's see. That was so, yeah. Look, I tried really hard to get that sound effect. That took me a very long time. So a round of applause would be ideal. Now, before I do go into this, I like to, you know, dabble in a bit of like light humor and jokes and whatever, but bit of a disclaimer here, a little bit of a warning with all my, like all my episodes obviously contain explicit language. I don't think I have to give a warning for that, obviously. Um, it's fucking in the title of my fucking podcast. But this particular episode, I'm obviously discussing serial killers and some of the crimes that they committed. So it might not be suitable some, for some people if you don't like, like I'm not going into detail. This is not a murder podcast. I'm talking kind of the mindset behind it. But in some cases I am disca- describing briefly some of the crimes. So um, I just want it to be mentioned that there might be it's it's I'm talking about serial killers here, so you, this might not be for you. There might it might be a bit intense the information. Okay, while I don't go into detail, I just wanted to put a disclaimer here just in case. Anyway, let's get into it. So, with I was really excited about this. Most of my like most of my favorite podcasts are true crime pod, podcasts, um, and weirdly like podcasts about big scams and cons and like that kind of shit. I love that kind of shit. Or true crime murder. My favorite murder. Love those women that have that podcast. That is amazing. So I thought this is the perfect episode for me. And all these questions came up for me. So the questions about serial killers and the mindset before I started delving in and researching were, are they born this way? If so, if they are born this way, can they resist the urge to fucking kill somebody? And when do you find out that you've got this trait? And like, is it something that your parent casually tells you? Like, hey, Julie, you have a gene that's going to give you this insatiable thirst for murder. Like, what? What? what is it that makes people click over and become a sadistic serial killer versus just like a sociopath or a psychopath that would never kill? And I thought... The first thing that we should do is go over like the actual definition of what a serial killer is. Technically, and here's the legit definition of a serial killer, it's having had murdered at least three people over a period of more than a month, so like 30 days, with some cooling off period in between each kill. Like that's a bit too specific for my liking. Like what? Like how technical are we getting here? So if it's 29 days and you've killed three people, then what are you? Like you're a killer, but you're not a serial killer because you couldn't resist the cooling off period and you didn't cool off for long enough. So you're what? Like an impatient, over-eager fuckwit. That's what it makes you. Which, keep in mind, is different to killing a group of people because when you kill a group of people in one go, that would make you a mass murderer. 
Which actually, that could be a topic for another podcast altogether, the mindset of a mass murderer. That's very interesting. Very different to a serial killer because a mass murder, it's you're doing all in one go, you're on a fucking rampage. But still I find like the 30-day thing a little bit bizarre. Then some psychologists argue that in addition to all of that, in addition to that 30-day criteria and more than three people in different kills, you also have to have like a deviant psychological motive to qualify as a serial killer. This isn't across the board, but this is what a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists say, mainly, well, psychiatrists. Um, A common one is sexual gratification or this fucked up need for power over a certain population of people, which is why often serial killers will stick to a theme or like for revenge of like often they'll want to get revenge over one person and then they go and kill a whole bunch of people that resemble that one person. But I feel like being a serial killer would be really fucking intense because not only do you have to have this bloodthirst or be bloodthirsty and also be like fucked in the head to a certain extent, you also have to be a pretty good organiser. You have to have a really good memory to remember all your lies and you've got to be a very good actor. It's like that Kim Kardashian um, fucking quote. It's a full-time job and it's extremely time-consuming and it's not as easy as it may appear to some people. I feel like that Kim Kardashian quote would sum up what a lot of serial killers would be thinking. Um, Anyway, so I read up on it. I read up on a lot so you guys wouldn't have to. And I found some pretty interesting stuff on serial killers and the mindset of them. According to Psychology Today, the most consistent feature with serial killers is extreme antisocial behavior, which is actually often a precursor or a warning sign in youth before they go on to develop traits of a psychopath or full-blown psychopathy, right? And we know that psychopathy and sociopathy, they're, they're being a psychopath and a sociopath, they're both um, subcategories of a disorder called antisocial personality disorder in the DSM-5. So we know that, right? But you cannot get diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder as, as like a proper legit disorder or being a sociopath or a psychopath. You can't really get diagnosed as that until you are 18 years old. Prior to that, you just have antisocial tendencies or you might have this callous unemotional traits. And this can start like quite young where children start doing like really, either really weird behavior or very like unemotional behavior where they show no remorse or where they hurt animals or where they, you know, injure their siblings or their friends or stuff like that. So, sorry, I'm also just reading off my notes here because there's so much information. So, yeah, antisocial personality personality disorder often starts with this conduct disorder such as callous unemotional traits um, and then these traits are like the hallmark for psychopathy. But like I said, you can only be diagnosed as being a psychopath when you are an adult. The next point to note is that brains of psychopaths who are serial killers and often psychopaths in general, but specifically we're talking about psychopath serial killers, are actually different when they are scanned versus, you know, your mainstream non-murderous everyday average Joe who doesn't go on murdering rampages, okay? So the brain scans are different. The grey matter in serial killers, a lot. the grey matter percentage is lower. And grey matter represents neurons and glia, basically brain cells, and the white matter is the myelin that kind of surrounds it. So obviously both are necessary. But the less grey matter you have in certain regions of the brain, then the less brain cells basically that you have in those regions. And they found that in 
psychopathic serial killers, the prefrontal cortex, which has to do with emotion processing, impulse control, social cognition, predicting outcomes of your actions, all of that, that area has a lower amount of gray matter, less brain cells in that area. Now, Let's also be fucking clear that just because grey matter is reduced in these areas of serial killers, we're seeing an association here and it's not a causal relationship. So it doesn't mean that if you have reduced grey matter, you are going to be a serial killer. There's many outcomes of having reduced grey matter and one of them, there is an association with being a serial killer, which kind of makes sense because you're talking about um, predicting the, the, the consequences of your actions and impulse control. So it's, it does make sense that that be the case. They also lack empathy, have no remorse, have no regard for the law or social norms or social constructs, and they have a big desire for revenge to certain people in society. So that's kind of overall what a serial killer is. And some serial killers do have psychosis, which is different to being a psychopath, and 90% of serial killers are psychopaths, okay? which do not, so psychopaths on, on its own as, as an isolated diagnosis do not have psychotic episodes unless there's like a comorbidity with another illness. But to be a psychopath does not mean that you have psychosis. Now, like I said, it's over 90%, like well over 90% of serial killers are psychopaths, right? Which kind of makes sense, right? You know, you have all these problems, you are... You don't have impulse control. You have no sense of remorse. You basically don't give a flying fuck, okay? But that's not 100%. We're talking about 90-something percent. So can I just ask, who the fuck is getting around being a casual fucking serial killer with a sense of remorse? Like, how do they sleep at night? I feel like there should be a docu-series or a full-on, full-blown series on Netflix that should be made about the remorseful serial killer. It's like the opposite of Dexter. You've got this murderous cravings and then you've got – like, who – does that make sense? Who – I don't think it's – can you be a serial killer and have remorse? That's one of those questions to ponder on throughout the whole episode today. But anyway – Whatever. Let's now take it back. You guys have heard me talk about sociopaths and psychopaths and how it occurs, how it kind of unfolds, and how childhood trauma plays a huge role in this. Attachment theory, disorganized attachment plays a massive role in people developing uh, antisocial personality disorder, um, what was it that I was just talking about, callous unemotional disorder, all of that. The most common form of a serial killer are the ones that have experienced some sort of trauma in their upbringing in those formative years. Neglect, abuse, a total lack of love, which is obviously neglect. Um, And there was this paper done by Mitchell et al. I can't remember the year. Fucking, that's annoying. That over 50%, 50% of serial killers were psychologically abused. 26% of them were sexually abused and 36% of them were physically abused. And of course, a lot of those percentages are overlapping. There might be some that had all three forms of abuse um, than the ones I just mentioned, but that just shows you how significant abuse is with people that go on and develop psychopathy and then go on and become a serial killer. But what is it in their development that takes them from a poor child who's being abused and then develop into a serial killer? One thing that's really common is this vivid and intense fantasies 
that these people play out in order to escape their own reality. And these can start at quite a young age. Like it can start, I mean, it's hard to tell, but it can start in childhood, but definitely through early, early teens. And it's kind of how they get their sense of power back. They're in a position where they absolutely have no power. They hate their caregivers because their caregivers hate them. They're terrified. They have no control over their life situation because they're being abused, whether it's physical, emotional, emotional, sexual. And they start creating these really crazy fantasies in their head of getting revenge or getting back in some way, shape or form. And these kids, on top of this, these fantasies that they play out, they are very, very isolated because another thing that happens when children are abused in many cases, obviously not all, but in many cases, is that they not only feel awful at home, but these children are really likely to feel out of place at school. They don't perform well at school. They are you know, very distracted. They're not developing at the rate of their peers because of the abuse that's going on at home. So they're not clicking well with other students. They're not clicking well with their teachers. They don't have the social skills. So then they keep dropping further and further behind their peers. And because of this, they are, they are an outcast. And so then they're likely to gravitate towards other outcasts and they are developing differently. And again, I need to reiterate this is not every child that experiences abuse i'm talking about a percentage a population a significant population of abused children who don't develop at the rate of their peers because of all the setbacks that they have in their life now serial killers who rape are obviously quite sexually incompetent too and and they often will rape to feel that they are powerful and sexually competent what like i don't Anyway, I don't know how logic works in their brains, but it's not how logic works in most people's brains. Like I'm going to force you down and force myself onto you and that means I am competent. Blows my mind how they get to that conclusion, but that is legitimately what they think. And a warning – okay, another thing. Another thing that happens with children, if you're thinking about how do I know if this poor abused child is then going to turn into a psychopathic serial killer, a warning sign that psych psychiatrists talk about from the child is something called the triad of evil. This doesn't happen for every serial killer, but there is a big link between this triad of evil and it it's shown through the, the child's behavior. And it's in one, it's three things, cruelty towards animals, wetting the bed and setting things on fire. If this child is displaying this triad of evil, fucking run for the hills. Probably put this child in therapy is what you should be doing instead of running away from this child. Now, Another thing that psychopaths, serial killer psychopaths are, they are sadists, which is where they enjoy the suffering of others. And sadist was actually in the DSM as a diagnosable disorder, but it's no longer in the DSM anymore. It's not included in the DSM-5 as it's not a disorder, but a personality trait. So it's a, often it might be a personality trait of a disorder, but it is a trait and not a disorder. Now, they love to have control. They need to dominate others. And this, of course, stems from this total lack of control when they were younger and these fantasies that they really wanted to play out. And then some of them just keep the fantasies in their head and a lot of them start playing out the fantasies. They start with, you know, quote, unquote, smaller things. They might be hurting people or hurting, you know, birds and then they move on to cats and dogs and then they move on to people. Now, revenge is a huge one. That's a big, big, big one is revenge. They first take revenge 
If possible, but not always, they will first take revenge on the people that hurt them. And then it extends beyond that to people that resemble that person either physically or resemble their lifestyle or traits. So some serial killers – now, this is really interesting. Some serial killers won't kill their abusive parent, but they're going to kill everyone who resembles their abusive parent as indirect revenge, even if their parent never knows that they're a serial killer. But they'll have this thing in their head of like, oh, no, you can't kill your parent. Like, I'm not a psycho, as if I'd kill my parent. But then they have this deep, deep, deep hatred towards that parent, even though they are protective of them. And then they go off and kill every parent that resembles. So any parent that might be abusive or a parent that has a similar lifestyle or job or whatever or personality to their parent, they'll go and kill them. Okay, so we know that one of the ways of becoming a psychopathic serial killer is through trauma as a child, emotional abuse as a child or neglect, which is obviously emotional abuse. Then there are genetic flaws that can actually turn you into a serial killer, believe it or not. And this is where there's deficits in the prefrontal cortex and amygdala that make people more primed to be violent, to be callous, unemotional, to be uh, to have no remorse whatsoever. If you have deficits in these particular brain areas, then you can actually be genetically primed to be this way and the warning signs are there from a very, very young age. So these kids that are born with this genetic predisposition for violence, they can start displaying these abnormal behaviours and, you know, violent behaviours of wanting to hurt others from the age of three. And for some, it's not possible to curb. Obviously, the only way to potentially curb it is through intense therapy and that's not something I can even discuss. You have to fucking take this child to a psychiatrist. But from the age of three and adopted kids – who might have had that genetic trait passed down as in they might have come from an abusive line, like generations of abuse, and then this child gets adopted out. That child might have this trait now that's genetically in them and they could be raised in a perfectly loving home, uh, perfectly normal, loving upbringing. Everything seems fine. They were adopted out as a baby and then as they enter adolescence, they become super violent and it escalates and escalates when they get older. Pretty much the only thing you can do in this scenario is the moment you start seeing these kind of traits is therapy, therapy, therapy. But can it be totally avoided? That's kind of the big question. We don't know yet because some people are treatable and some people are not. So that that then brings the question of is it actually avoidable or are the people that were treatable just a milder case in the first place and the people that were not treatable, it's just that they were never able to treat it anyway. And now the next one is what I find so fucking interesting. Head trauma to the frontal lobe, which is that part just behind your forehead, your prefrontal cortex that, you know, well, like I said, reasoning, all of that. It's kind of the home, a lot of A lot of psychology or pop psychology calls it like the home of your personality. Of course, your personality is intertwined throughout your whole brain, but because that's where your interpersonal skills are and intrapersonal skills, that's kind of the home of your relationships and personality. And if you get a significant enough blow to that part of your brain, it can actually change how you um, interact with people and it can change your personality. So head trauma to the frontal lobe can cause huge deficits in your behavior. It can make people have a huge change in their personality. They can become volatile, violent, and in extreme cases, so violent that they can just snap and commit murders. As like an extension of this, if you guys are interested in this, definitely go check out that documentary on Netflix called, I think it's The Mind 
of Aaron Hernandez or something, something Aaron Hernandez. And this guy was a very, very up and coming, successful um, uh, football player, like gridiron, I believe it was. And he had really bad head trauma. I think, I think with this guy it was from playing football, but I'm not sure if there was other things in his upbringing as well. But it was head trauma, repeated, repeated head trauma. And this guy became fucking murderous. And this guy I think had been abused as well, but they looked at his brain when they scanned it and they saw all these crazy deficits within his brain. It's very, very interesting. And another thing, I was watching a video by this man called Michael Stone, who's a professor of clinical psychiatry. He specializes in studying quote-unquote evil people and he's got this book which now I feel I need to read and it's called The Anatomy of Evil and he talks all about you know serial killers and psychopaths and all of that and he talks about the story of Philip Garrido who's this fucked up person this guy Philip Garrido you guys might not already know this name because it's a famous story but this guy was an apparently normal kid normal upbringing, everything was fucking normal. And when he was 14, he was on the back of his brother's motorcycle. He had an accident and he suffered this significant head trauma that needed an operation. Like he he needed a fucking head or brain surgery, right? And within days after the surgery, his behavior was different and he started – now, I don't know – this is what they don't mention. I don't know who the fuck is reporting these, but he started having rape fantasies. So – is he re- self-reporting these rape fantasies? Obviously, because how else would people know that? But he went from being this normal dude, kid, teenager, whatever, to as he got older, he became a fucking rapist, basically, and to the extent that he served time for rape and then he was out on parole. And this is the famous case where he abducted this young girl called J.C. Dugard. It's a very famous story. He abducts this young girl when she's on her way to either the bus stop or on her way to school and kept her for 18 years trapped as a prisoner in his home and raped her repeatedly and she gave birth to two children as a result of these rapes. And get this, he abducted her with the help of his fucking wife. Like, okay, can I just say, how? How do these people find each other and reveal how fucked up they are to each other and also once they found each other and married each other how do they discuss hey this marriage of ours not interesting enough let's throw in an abduction somewhere in there and keep someone in like a dungeon and not just someone a child in a dungeon so you my husband can rape her repeatedly Wow, like this dude might have head trauma, but this – like anyway, okay, that's just my thoughts. And the really fucked up thing about all of this is that this man had already served time and was on parole. He was on parole when she was kidnapped. And this girl, the victim, the woman, JC, she then sued the state of California and was actually – she won and was paid $20 million because of the state's slip-ups during managing his parole. Like, fucking sue the fuck out of the state system. What is wrong with people? What is wrong with the governments and the whole parole system? It's some, and I don't know the exact number, but it's some crazy fucked up percentage of rape cases that are committed by convicted rapists who have served time and are out on parole, which makes me sick. And it's like that's the number is massive with pedophilia as well. Like convicted pedophiles that have done time 
are then out on parole and go and find their next victim. I just, it blows my mind how the fuck that can happen and how the system of that, like, ugh. And that just goes down that whole, like, wormhole, black hole tangent of this argument that if people have served time, should they be granted anonymity after they leave prison or should there be, like, a pedophile register so people can know where these pedophiles live and where they're moving to? I'm like, I'm sorry, can't. I'm just going to put the safety of children above you having the right to privacy. Like, sorry. And also, sorry that you might have had an injury, but that still does not put your privacy above the safety of a child. It doesn't. It just doesn't. I don't care how, like... No, it's no. Anyway, granted that this dude was not a serial killer, but it kind of gives you insight into what happened when this dude was seemingly normal with a seemingly normal upbringing. His siblings were normal. The dude has a head injury and then bang, he becomes a fucking serial rapist. Okay. And there's also brain parts within the limbic system and how they connect to other brain regions, such as the temporal lobe, the frontal lobe that are responsible for sexual responsiveness, which is basically the things that are going to arouse us. And if that area is damaged, whether it is a genetic thing or whether there's trauma, head trauma, and there's like a defect, then what is going to arouse you can change. And this could be that people could then all of a sudden after trauma could be aroused by violent acts or become pedophiles or become aroused by objects. Like the object one is fine. Get aroused by a table any day over the other alternatives But the interesting thing about all of this is that 30%, 30%, which is a huge number, of serial killers have experienced head trauma prior to them committing these crimes. That's massive. That's fucking huge. That says a lot. But the bulk of it, of course, is emotional trauma and abuse as children. So they don't have the proper upbringing, they don't learn the social skills and boundaries necessary to have real relationships. Because they don't have real relationships, they become social outcasts and then because of this they can't evolve properly, they keep reliving the trauma again and again because because these these people don't have the ability to form new relationships outside of their abuse that they've had. They then continue reliving these revenge fantasies because it's not like with some cases people go through trauma and then they are able to get out of that. They're able to develop new relationships, healthier relationships, a healthier lifestyle. They can move past it. They can progress with their peers and they can do the therapy. In this scenario with the serial killers, they don't get those opportunities. They don't get those kind of windows where they can kind of have another life. So for them, because it's just backwards, 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 they keep regressing and everyone's advancing, they then get stuck in this world of reliving their pain and re getting stuck in that loop of fantasy and fantasizing these revenges and the fantasies get bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, of course, they can't move forward in a healthy way. So the only way is to kind of live out their fantasy or just have zero social connections whatsoever. So we've spoken about the mindset behind serial killers as far as, you know, they're they're very antisocial, they've had either head trauma, a genetic predisposition to it, or they've had abuse as children. We've spoken about the triad of evil. We've spoken about kind of how their behavior can change because of, you know, the fact that they're an outcast and all of that. But not every serial killer is antisocial. And some of them display quite normal lifestyles and quite normal traits. So 
One of them, very famous one, is called the BTK Killer Dennis Radar. So BTK, blind, torture, kill. This can't was a father, a husband, a fucking church leader. Can I just ask what church are we talking about? Was this a cult? What church? It was probably like an MLM, a pyramid scheme, no doubt. And he went on to kill 10 people between 1974 and 1991. And he seemed to have a normal life with normal relationships, normal social fucking, just normal, okay? So these two polar extremes in his life and keeping them up. So he's got serial killer, church leader, father, husband vibes. And this is the category of the narcissistic predator. So it's kind of a category of psychopathic serial killers as you how's, how's that for niche title on your cv i'm a psychopathic serial killer of the narcissistic predator variety and these people are going to do whatever it takes to get their needs met so if that means having a wife having children having a community of people that respect them they can carry on doing their motors on the side fulfilling that quote-unquote need that they have and then no one's going to suspect them because they've created this image, this persona, this, this completely different side of their personality that's fabricated by them. And, to the, and the reason they do this is because they are creating a community who would stand up for them and who would defend them and would, who would um, vouch for their innocence. So this is how premeditated these people can be, that you would go on to have like rear children as like alibis or like as character references. It's really crazy. Anyway, this dude, Dennis Rader, after he was, you know, convicted and whatever, he would talk about something that he would do in his mind with the different sides of his personality and he called it cubing, okay? So on this cube, you've got obviously six sides to a cube, but he would talk about one side of the cube, he was a family man. The other side of the cube, he was a social whatever. The other side, he was a church leader. And on one casual side of those cubes, he was a serial killer. So... In his mind, he kind of stated that the way he looked at this cube, whatever fa- whatever side of the cube was facing forward would be what he was displaying. So the moment that serial killer cube side is on, he's a fucking serial killer, no remorse, nothing. And then he can flip the cube and whatever's facing forward, this is all like an ima- like imaginary in his head. Like now he's a church leader and as a church leader, he can – admittedly uh, or, or, or supposedly he says that he could then, you know, be more remorseful and have more care. But because he wasn't in the serial killer face of the cube at the time, you know, he could be remorseful versus when he – like that, I don't buy that. I don't fucking buy that at all. But that was what he claimed. He claimed that there would be sides of him that could be remorseful and sides that couldn't. I just don't really see if you are an actual psychopath that that is a possibility. I think he just kind of made it out to be this way. But he was a psychopath. And this guy, the hard time in his life, apparently, was that he at one point in his life was jobless and couldn't get a job, wasn't bringing in any income and his wife at the time was the sole breadwinner and that made him feel emasculated. So naturally, to feel like a man, this fucking clown, his solution was to restore his manhood through murder. So that just gives you a bit of an insight into how these people's brains work. So like, oh, my wife is bringing in the money. I have to go kill somebody. Like how do those two thoughts 
somehow intersect, I'm not quite sure. But for this dude, it seemed quite a logical solution to his problems of feeling emasculated other than like why don't you just fucking clean the house, cunt? That should keep you entertained instead of going off on a murderous spree. And also not just a murderous spree, but this dude's name, tag name, whatever they called him, was the blind torture kill. So this guy went from like, oh, my wife's got a job and I don't make money to becoming this blind torture kill murderer. Very extreme, very dramatic. I don't buy it. I think that this dude was always like that, that there's no way that that isolated event could have caused this. This guy's in denial. He's a fucking, obviously, a psychopath. So there's an example of a serial killer, and there are many like it, uh, Ted Bundy also being one of them, that can hold social relationships, normal social relationships, and everyone be super shocked when it comes out that they actually were the serial killer that everyone was looking for. Now, let's look at the split between female and male serial killers and the bit of a difference that's going on there. Females in the last couple of, like a few decades ago, were making up around less than 11% of serial killers. That's kind of in the last century, basically. If you look at a century spread of serial killers, females make up less than 11%. But in the last couple of decades, in the last three decades, it's more like 5 to 6% of serial killers are women. So it's dropped, which I don't know if that's a good thing. Over, I mean, oh, fuck it. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a good thing, but that just means that the percentage of – so obviously the number of serial killers doesn't necessarily – it's not that it's dropped. I don't think it matters which gender is doing the killing, but is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, their motives are different in general. Women are a lot less violent in their means. They are way more subtle than men are in general – uh, they prefer poison by a long shot. 50% of female serial killers kill by using poison. They're also way less random in their kill. It's very, 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 very unlikely. It happens, but fucking unlikely for a woman to grab someone in the dark of the night and just murder them. Okay? that That's fucking common with men. And I hate to say common, but it's common where, you know, women will just be like pounced upon, raped and murdered and like, anyway, let's not even get into that. It's fucked up. But that just, it's very rare for women to do that. Women's motive is mainly money. Serial killer women, it's mainly a money thing. Whereas for men, it's mainly got to do with sex and power or both. There was this woman named Amy Archer Gillian who ran a nursing home and would poison the residents in the nursing home with arsenic. And this is, honestly, she married some of them. So she's running this nursing home, marrying, I'm guessing like at different times, not consecutive, not, not, you know, at the same time. But she's marrying them and then setting it up so she's going to be the beneficiary to their money once they die. And then she she organises to kill them through fucking arsenic. Well, not even organise. She does the killing with the arsenic is basically what's happening. So... That to me is just outrageous, but that's a perfect example of a serial killer who's not using violent means but poisoning and it was all so she could get money. Now, like I said, this is just, you know, we're talking about um, percentages here. So we're talking the bulk of women are going to kill in a nonviolent way. They're going to kill for money and if it's not for money, they're killing for a very, very, very personal reason um, whereas for men, they can kill more so like 
they have these fucked up fantasies and they can often often sexual, not always but often, and that's where they can just, you know, attack absolute randoms who fit some sort of a mold and that's good enough for them and they go off on these murderous rampages to absolute randoms so they can feel more powerful, so they can feel sexually competent, which blows my mind, and they can feel socially competent as well, which how the fuck does that work? But anyway, that's how they feel. Now I want to talk about when these people are convicted and how what they're going to be playing because a lot of people think, okay, well, there's the insanity plea and it's actually quite rare that serial killers are going to get away with an insanity plea for many reasons. Firstly, not many people actually go for the insanity plea because there's quite a bit of criteria that goes down to prove that you're insane. So it's actually quite rare that people will even... As, I, I feel like it seems like it's more common than what it is, but it actually is quite rare that people will plea insanity for a serial killer, like a murderous spree kind of case. Because with an insanity plea, you're, you're basically requesting or stating that you cannot be held accountable or responsible for the crime, or in this case, crimes, because you were, at least at the time of the crime, insane and incapable of, you know, having knowing the difference between right or wrong. And if you can play insanity, then you're not guilty of the crime, but you're still responsible for the crime, if that makes sense. So you yourself as the person that you are standing here sane at trial are not really guilty, but you as a human still did it, so you still have to be removed from society. And so that's like, are you going to go to prison or are you going to go to an institution instead? Now, regardless of where your views stand on the ethics of all of this, like let's say that you're driven to kill and you've got this absolute urge to kill, the actual guidelines of pleading insanity have got to do with being incapable of distinguishing right from wrong. Very difficult to prove that, especially in the case of being a psychopath because a psychopath knows the difference between right or wrong. They're just they're just going with their urges and doing it. And additionally to that, they have no remorse. So it's not like the the argument against it isn't really that strong for them when they so badly have an urge to do it, okay? But they understand the difference between right and wrong. If they didn't understand the difference between right and wrong, they would probably be doing this publicly, you know? So when you see someone literally snap it and go into psychosis and do something, often it is public and you can really tell that this person was absolutely not sane of mind at the time of the crime. That's a whole different thing that we're not even discussing here. But the idea of a serial killer pleading insanity kind of they'd probably never get away with it because regardless of what um, psychological psychological condition they have, they cannot claim that they were incapable of distinguishing right from wrong. And you can tell this based on all the premeditation, based on all the planning, all the hiding, all the conniving, the lies, all of that. You fucking know that you did something wrong. So to play insanity is pretty rare in the cases of being a serial killer. So then if they can't, if you can't say that you're insane at the time or the insanity plea, but you do have a psychological condition, a disorder, a neurological condition that's kind of driving you to do this more so than the average person, then kind of, it's kind of like the ethics behind what is the punishment for these people. But then the next question kind of is, if you didn't have these neurological condition, if you weren't a psychopath, you wouldn't be killing people in the first place. Well, maybe the fucking 3% that we discussed earlier. So I guess it ultimately comes down to the ethics of like where does responsibility start and where does it end? And there's people that, you know, might have these urges to do something but don't because they know even if they have no remorse, they know on a social level that it is wrong and they can't 
they wouldn't want to put up with the consequences because it equals a unpleasant life for them being in prison and whatever. So therefore, if they are aware of the right and wrong, that's enough for the courts to be like, nah, you can't be trialed under being mentally ill or insane or whatever the the kind of phrase or term is in whatever country that you're in. So even if you can prove that you've got damage to certain areas or you were abused as a child or all these things that led you to be the way you are, it still doesn't hold up in court in most cases. The, the judge, the jury is kind of like, you still knew it was wrong and you still followed through with it. That's enough for us to convict you, basically. So, yeah, um, that's pretty much it for today. I kind of thought I'd just throw all these interesting facts that you talk about a few fucking cases, but that pretty much comes down to the, the mindset of a serial killer. Most of them are psychopaths. Men and women kill for different reasons as far as serial killer. Serial killer, men and women kill for different reasons. Um, it often comes down to it's mainly abuse, but then, of course, head trauma in 30% of cases, which is fucking interesting, and then, of course, the genetic predisposition as well, which could be through generations of abuse or it could be some sort of a mutation in the gene or it could be some sort of lesion in the brain that's causing you to fucking act out in this way. Um, that is all for today. I really hope you guys enjoyed that episode and my mindset off little um, thing. If you guys are interested in hearing the mindset off other ones, feel free to put it on the Facebook group and just keep adding it there. Um, all the different suggestions for it. That would be great. Uh, there's a whole bunch that I've already got, but always, always give give suggestions for me. I love that shit so much. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Again, sorry that this episode is is late, but now my book is in. The book is called The Neuroscience of Self-Love. I've finally handed in the structural edit, re-edit, edit, fucking re-edit, and that should be out. Look, don't quote me on this, but around September this year, September 2022. So I will definitely be keeping you updated with when all that's happening. Guys, if you are still interested in reading my book that is currently out, Be Bold, that's of course available in most bookstores within Australia. If you are overseas, I think the best way to order it is through the book depository. Don't really know how well the shipping times are with the book depository. I've heard kind of hectic lag times and some that are not too bad. So it's a bit all over the place with shipping times, but the book depository is where you can get it. Also Booktopia, but I'm not sure if that's just within Australia. So not sure if that helps any international peeps, but book depository for sure. Um, And it's called Be Bold. That's my first book. And the second one won't be out until at least September this year. That is all guys. Thank you so much for listening. You are the real MVPs. You are the best, my beans. And that is all. As always, remember, be kind to yourselves. Be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. And don't be a serial killer. Danke.